This morning, we are finishing our series in 1 Timothy. If you want to open to the book of 1 Timothy and you uh, don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in your pew rack, and you can open to page 991. We've been journeying for the last six months through the book of 1 Timothy. And typically when we go through a book of the Bible, we, uh, we spend uh, one week just kind of solidifying our gains. It's not a, this isn't a review of 1 Timothy or trying to summarize the whole book. Hopefully you've been uh, sticking with us through the series and you kind of know the book. But having done the work we've done, having studied what we've studied, we want to kind of say, all right, God, what do you have for us as a church? So that's what this conclusion sermon is. Um, For our reading this morning, we'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. And I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You can be seated as we pray. Father, it's my prayer and those in this room joined together in this prayer, we together ask that you would shape us and mold us by your word. We've spent this time working methodically through this book and we know there are things that your spirit would like to impress upon us to shape us as a people, as individuals and as a church. We don't want to quickly forget that, like the man who looks in the mirror, sees his face, and then walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. We want to be a man who looks intently into the word of truth and is changed by it. We can't do this in our own strength. We need the help of your spirit. So it is our our prayer as a church. Right now, together, we, we come before you and ask for a powerful work of your spirit from this Time in your word and from these last six months in First Timothy. Do your work, God, in Christ's name. Amen. I couldn't believe what he just said. I was in university, and one of my pastors was Dave Helm, and he was telling us what his deepest desire was for his children as they grew up. And what he said is, I want them to be churchmen. Churchmen? I grew up being taught that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Couldn't we come up with something better than churchmen? Maybe like follower of Jesus, born again? Churchmen. Came unexpectedly, kind of out of left field certainly made me think. 
But after our time in 1 Timothy these last six months, I believe Dave Helm was exactly right in his desire for his kids. Let me explain to you why. I want to begin by just pressing the idea a little bit about having something we're committed to, like a church. We as people were created to want to be some part of something bigger than ourselves. There's something inside of us that, that knows there's more to life than just kind of putting one foot in front of the other, surviving, maybe accumulating a bit of wealth, maybe having a family, but, but kind of just you, you live, you do your thing, and then you die. We want to be some, part of something bigger and greater. And you see that ache and that yearning in the younger generation as they've been given causes. Maybe it's for advocating for LGBTQT. Maybe it's for combating global warming. Or maybe it's fighting systemic injustice. I want to give myself to, to something that makes a difference in the world. Something bigger than myself. That is, a, that is a desire God has given us. Some of us maybe feel it less or suppress it a bit, but it's a desire all of us have. And, and as, we, as we kind of come into our, 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 our concluding sermon on 1 Timothy, I want, I want us to be, have the big picture of what God's doing in this world in mind because it relates very much to what we're talking about here and, and why it's important to be a churchman. Because when you look out in our world, you see pain, you see strife, you see heartache. Say, so look out in our world. Of course, you know, I don't mean just political events. I mean our own families and our own hearts. And, and the scriptures say there is a reason the world is like that. They teach the world is like that because early on, through the first man, Adam, we, we rejected our God. We said we will go our own way. We rebelled against him. And as a result, we were severed from our relationship with our heavenly father, our creator. And that broken relationship whereby God's grace and blessing toward us was turned to wrath and curse. has poisoned our world and poisoned our own hearts. We're cut off from him, and the world is broken. Now, God is gracious, and he continues to hold out his hand, and we haven't seen all of how dark it could be, but nonetheless, we live in a world that's like that. But God has a plan to redeem this world, to reconcile us to the Father. And that plan, of course, the first step in that plan was that God himself, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, would take on flesh and come into this world as a human to absorb the penalty, the wrath our sin deserves, to pay the price so that we could be reconciled to our Heavenly Father, restored to that vital relationship. 
That was step one in the plan. Step two occurs, Jesus died. He rose from the dead to prove that he conquered both sin and death. But he also ascended into heaven. And one day he is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to usher in a kingdom that is free from heartache, free from strife, free from pain. We'll be forgiven, redeemed. We'll know justice, wholeness, peace. And all who have aligned themselves with Christ, who have followed Jesus as their king, all who are in Christ will know the, that eternal perfect kingdom. And all who have continued on in rebellion against Christ will know nothing but the heartache and pain of this world without any of God's grace. Something the Bible con- compares to an eternal fire. We today live suspended between those two points of God's redemption plan. And we are part of the church, and the church plays a critical role in that. So that's when we start thinking about why the local church might be so important. We need to have that big picture in mind. It was about 25 years ago that a, uh, a rock singer named Beck produce a kind of niche hit called Where It's At. Now he claimed in the song that Where It's At was a place where hip-hop started, two turntables and a microphone. That's where it's at. With apologies to Beck, what I'm trying to say this morning is the local church is where it's at. And First Timothy gives us two compelling reasons why the local church is where it's at. And the first reason is because the local church is the pillar and buttress of the gospel. Remember as we're working through 1 Timothy, chapter 2 and chapter 3 begin begin and end with a bookend. So look, look how chapter 2 begins. Look there with me. Picking up in verse 3. We're to live a certain kind of life. It says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That is the truth, right? Come to the knowledge of that truth. And then at the end of chapter 3, as we just read, If I delay, verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. All this about how the church should behave and how the church is to function and how we're to act as a church matters because God's heart is for all people to know Jesus. 
And he wants the truth of the gospel of what Jesus did for all people to be held up. That's what a pillar and buttress does. It's like something that holds something really high and it's supported and, and displayed prominently. I don't know if I'm the only one in Georgetown who's being bombarded with uh, advertisements for the new McGibbon Hotel condominium. You see them when you drive around town in little places. They pop up in my Facebook feed. They're everywhere. Because, of course, this, these condos are going to sell out quickly. And it's so wonderful and so amazing. I need to know about it now so that now, even before it's built, I can sign up and get involved. The new kingdom that Jesus is going to usher in is real and it's paradigm altering for how we live now. It's so good. And God is saying, We're that advertisement. We're the ones, the local church is designed by God to be the ones that go and say, Look. Look, this is what the church should, or this is what the new heavens will be like. There's something coming that's greater. We want you to know about it. Let's be that pillar and buttress of truth. And there's a certain sense in which this is true of the church universal. All Christians should be about this. But interestingly, what 1 Timothy tell, is telling us is it's actually the local church that he's talking about. The, the gathering of believers in a certain place under certain leaders around God's word. You saw that in chapter 3. So he talks about, okay, this is my heart. God talks about his heart that all be saved. He talks about how men should behave, how women should behave within that local church. And then he starts to talk about how overseers are to be appointed, how deacons are to be appointed. He's talking about an actual specific church that Timothy is leading. And then he says, I hope you come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He is talking about the local church. This is what God's designed to hold out the gospel. According to the Bible, I want you to hear this. According to the Bible, if your heart is to have the nations know Jesus, if your heart is for people to be saved through the knowledge of the gospel, then we are to give ourselves to the local church. Now, I know in the book of Acts, you see local churches sending out missionaries who incidentally go and start other local churches. I don't... I'm not trying to say there's no other means that God uses. He... But, but even those means are tied to the local church. The evangelists that go out tied to the local church. The missionaries that go out local church. Even in Colossians, when we're all supposed to be making the good news known in different ways, proclaiming the truth. It's in the context of healthy local church. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but, but the scriptures themselves are saying this is the mechanism God has designed. 
three decades ago, if a manufacturer, manufacturer wanted to get its product to the consumer, he did it through retail stores. Three decades ago, if a movie studio wanted to release a movie, it would be through Blockbuster Video or Cineplex. Nowadays, if a manufacturer wants to get something out to the consumer, it's through FedEx or UPS. Nowadays, if a movie studio wants to release a movie, it's through Netflix or Disney+. But God's method for getting his gospel to the world has remained unchanged. 2,000 years ago, when 1 Timothy was written, the local church. 30 years ago, it was the same local church. And today, it's the same local church. The local church, where it's at. But there's a, a second reason 1 Timothy gives us for why the local church is, is so important. It's not just a pillar and buttress of truth, of the gospel. It is also a greenhouse for the growth of our souls. You might have noticed as we were going through 1 Timothy, these, these warnings, these dangers for Christians. So I think of in chapter 1, in verse 18, he says, um, I want you to wage the good warfare, Timothy, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And then he gives specific examples. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, look there. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, later times, some will depart from the faith. This time as a result of demon doctrines. And then chapter 6, verse 10, speaking of the love of money, picking up in the middle, it says, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. You see this concern that pervades 1 Timothy? That our own souls could be lost. Could abandon the faith. And so in response to this danger, 1 Timothy is written. It's written to say, the church, the local church needs to be a place that's safe. You need to be keeping that stuff out. You need to guard it. And that's why at the end of chapter 4, Timothy says, if you persist in these things, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is life and death. There are dangers out there that want to creep their way into the church and pull us away could come in the form of word manipulators who twist the scriptures. It could come in the form of word deniers 
who undercut the scriptures. Or it could come in the form of word foggers who generate all sorts of arguments and discussions that keep our minds focused on anything but the scriptures and the truths they so clearly teach. And the danger, the danger is that our our souls could be gripped by these things and we could be led astray. So Timothy is written, 1 Timothy is written to say, no, we need to, we need to guard and protect the local church. The local church is important not just for the saving of souls, but for the growing of souls. Because when we as a people are tethered to the word of God, anchored there and to the gospel it holds out, and to the Christ who's at the center of that, and the God who's spoken it, and the Holy Spirit that's inspired that. When when that's where we are, then we grow and thrive. The church is not just a pillar and buttress. It is also a greenhouse. The local church, where it's at. There are a lot of good causes you can give yourself to in this world. Maybe you give yourself to a really good political party. And you see its success. That will pale in comparison to the good that the local church could do. Maybe you give yourself to trying to limit the effects of climate change. You see some gradual progress in legislation around the world. It'll pale in comparison to what can be accomplished through the local church. There's all sorts of noble causes. Securing clean water. Ending abortion. Protecting families. I'm not saying that God's people won't give themselves to these kind of things. I'm just saying we do it with a sense of proportion. A sense of what really matters. Which is the local church. According to God's word. I think... It's easy for us to uh, think of the local church like a treehouse. It's great. It's It's a nice benefit for me and my friends, maybe a few neighborhood kids who come over, but God's designed it like a majestic lighthouse. We think of the local church too trivially. This This is what God has designed. And I'm not just talking about in theory. I'm talking about this, this local church. Or maybe you hear this and you go to some other local church, that local church. But for those who are in this room, Maple Avenue Baptist Church. This is the majestic thing that God has designed for the nations to see the good news of Jesus 
for, for our own soul's growth. We, just by gathering here and doing the one another's that God has called us to do, just by loving one another, speaking truth to one another, helping each other grow, walking with one another, being family together, being a body together, we each part is vowed, just by doing this and then making the gospel known, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, just by doing this, we are doing something profound that is part of the huge saving plan God has for the whole world. The local church, where it's at. If that's true, what should we give ourselves to? I get the concept, James. So what, what does that mean for how I behave? If the first half of this sermon was giving two reasons the local church is where it's at, the second half of the sermon is giving us two things that First Timothy calls us to do if this local church is so important. The first thing it calls us to is godly order. What I mean is how we organize our church, that we let God guide that, godly order. There are all sorts, there's hundreds of ways to organize a church, really thousands of ways to organize a church. You think at a structural level of things like, is it elder-led or pastor-led or deacon-led or board-led? Is it... uh, you know, more top-down or grassroots? Is it more hierarchical or flat? Is it more, is the leadership structure more intuitive or explicit? Is it more congregational or less so? Is, it, is, is there a local church autonomy? Is it tied to a broader group of local churches? All these kind of questions, right? At a structural level. But you also then can think at a, like, what, what values does it have? Not just in theory, but in practice and how they work. What, what, what do they value? So, Do you value somebody who's gifted or do you value character? Do you value somebody who has kind of proven results and a track record or do you value methodology? Do you value um, somebody who's readily and ready and available or do you value someone who's kind of tested and proven over time? You You know, all these different things like they get fleshed out in the real, okay, what do you say in theory, but actually what do you do in practice? And that's part of how you order a church. So when you look at all these different combinations of things, right, there, there are thousands of ways to organize a church. But First Timothy was written so that we'd know how to behave in the household of God. He says that right after he talks about the two main leadership positions within a church. The order of the church, the organization of the church matters. There's thousands of ways you can do it, but what does God say really matters? What do we learn from 1 Timothy? Well, there there are two main offices in the church. Overseers, sometimes called elder. And deacon. We saw that the overseer elders are to give themselves to word ministry, leading and overseeing the church in a way that that lets God's word guide things. 
And that deacons then are to, to serve the church. We saw that the, the kind of men God wants in the office of overseer or elder are first of all men who know the word of God and are gifted to be able to say, here's what the Bible actually says so that the church itself can be led not by men but by Christ himself. But also, and as a point of strong emphasis, there to be men who so know their God that his character is reflected through them. When they face the various challenges and stressors, stresses and challenges, uh, stresses and, and strains and pressures and critiques that inevitably come with being in leadership, what are they like? Do they reflect the character of their heavenly Father? That was chapter three, chapter five. It also talks about how we need to make sure that they are provided for and taken care of. Uh, we need to handle accusations against them in appropriate ways, about how we need to be careful that we don't commission men to this role too quickly because oftentimes both sin and righteousness isn't shown until there's some time given. What does it say about deacons? It says deacons should be people who have a similar godly character as the overseers, who, who, who also reflect the character of their God. They should hold fast the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And we should test them first before we put them into a role like that, make sure they're able to handle those kind of responsibilities come with serving. Because God, God really does value the character of his leaders deeply. And we need to take the time and the care to make sure we've really understood those things. I think the, the last thing kind of on, on godly order in a church is all these words to the man of God, Timothy himself. We can debate a little bit, is this referring to just what any elder's role should be? Or is this kind of a, a specific person who's appointed in a unique way for teaching or preaching, somewhat akin to a senior pastor? But it really doesn't matter how we shake that all out because the words given to Timothy are, are, are basically analogous with the words given to overseers in general. Over and over again, he's called to two things. To hold forth the word of God, to give himself to, to, to public reading of scripture, to teaching from it, to exhortation. To hold out the word of God and nothing but that. And to be a godly man whose character reflects the fathers. Same thing that any elders called to. Thousands of ways to organize a church. I think in my, my church experience and talking to other pastors and Christians as well, there's a lot of things that we do. 
Okay, I think, uh, I think we need to have a good businessman in leadership leading the church. That's important for a time like this. Or this, this person has a big family, so if you have a big family, you should be leading the church. Or a lot of the people in the church know this person and connect this person and love this person, so they should be given to leadership. Or we should organize it because in the business world, this really works well. We should organize the church like this. Or, hey, we need a pa- this pastor has, has proven to be really effective People are really moved by his sermons. Lots of people are coming to the church. And you know, there's all these types of things that we value and prioritize. Now, at some level, you have, to work, you have to organize your church somehow. And there's going to be there's a, there's a many ways to do it that are still prioritizing these things. But the key is that we take what God has said is important and say, that's what's important to us. And we keep that front and center for how we order the church. So easy to just do it in our own wisdom, based on our own experience. Ah, it's no big deal. Like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get after the things God says, but this is really important over here, and I want to really emphasize this. When we start tinkering with the church and doing it our way, instead of letting God's values shape us, chipping away at the foundation at the lighthouse. We're contaminating the greenhouse. It's not smart. So the first thing we give ourselves to, according to 1 Timothy, is godly order. The second thing that we should give ourselves to, if the first one's godly order, the second one is godliness. Godliness. One of the breathtaking things about the first Timothy as you read through it are these beautiful profiles of godliness. Little vignettes of what a a godly this or that looks like. So in chapter 2, here's a a profile of how godly men behave in the church. Here's how godly women behave in the church. In chapter 3, here's a profile of a godly overseer. Here's a profile of a godly deacon. And it's such beautiful, compelling pictures. In chapter 5, here's a a profile of a godly widow. Chapter 6, a godly bondservant or or loosely an employee today. Or or a godly rich man, wealthy person. And there are these these beautiful pictures, right? Godliness matters in the church. How we behave together matters. There's a phrase that's fairly popular amongst those who are trying to change the world, and it says, think global, act local. Maybe you've heard that. It's actually really true. The things we can do to change the world, according to the Bible, are what are we doing right here? How are we loving one another, being godly right here? So look at chapter 2. What does it say to the men? Verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Men, give yourself to prayer and don't fight and get angry. That's that's how you give yourself to the local church. 
you want that fleshed out a little bit, read at length the qualifications in chapter 3 for overseers, verses 1 to 7. Not violent, but gentle, right? Not a lover of money or drunkard. But all that's just fleshing out. Just have holy hands, pray. Don't get angry, don't quarrel. Right after that in chapter 2, verses 9 to 16, or 9 to 15, I think it is. Um, word to godly women. Profile of godly women. Don't undercut the male headship that God has set for the safeguard of the church. Instead, undercut our culture's view of what, a be- what beauty is. Give yourself to good works. If you want that fleshed out a little bit, there's a great, uh, the the qualifications for enrolling a a widow offer a great profile of that. Look in chapter 5. Picking up at verse 10. Having a reputation for good works. Same thing that women were told to give themselves to. If she's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of saints cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And then later it talks about not being idle or a gossip or a busybody. This is the kind of people God calls us to be. Bondservant, give yourself submitting to your master. As we saw last week, if you're wealthy, don't carry your gold in your heart. Carry it in your hands so you can use it to serve God. And over, over it all, we've seen the strong theme of the household of God. We are family, brother, sister, father, son, mother, daughter. This is the new eternal family. So we are to love and treat one another as family. This is what we give ourselves to as, as Christians. This kind of godliness in community. If the church is where it's at because it is pillar and buttress of the gospel, because it is a greenhouse for the growth of our souls, we should give ourselves to godly order within the local church. We should give ourselves to godliness. Dave Helms right. This, this, is, this is what we give ourselves to, churchmen. Of course, assuming you're not just somebody who shows up to church and kind of, I'm a good, righteous person who goes up to church and shows off how righteous I am. No, people changed by the gospel, giving themselves to, to the household of God. Can feel like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's it? Like, I got bigger dreams. I mean, I want to do great things for God's kingdom. I'm going to create a blog that's going to change the world. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to lead this Christian organization. I got big plans. God has used people in great ways. Think of William Wilberforce. 
Or you think of Charles Spurgeon or Hudson Taylor or Amy Carmichael, Billy Graham, Fanny Crosby. People gave these huge impacts to. Maybe there's some who hear this sermon, who are in this room, and God is going to use in mighty ways. As he sees fit in his providence, and celebrate that. But the way God changes the world is not through celebrities and heroes. He might use those, especially when they're tethered to the local churches, in a certain way every single one I just mentioned was. But the way he wants to transform the world is through these little outposts, local churches, like Maple Avenue Baptist Church in our little corner of Halton Hills, doing what God's called us to do. I think sometimes we can be like the kid who wants to be a fighter pilot. And yet he can't even stand up to the bully on the playground. She dreams one day of being the prime minister of Canada. But how is she at just leading her classmates? We have these dreams of what I'm going to do for Jesus. But do I love my brother who's in need right here? Do I walk together with my sisters in Bible study, looking to God's word and helping each other grow, keeping each other accountable, praying for each other? One of the most profound things you can do is to bring a meal to someone in need. To pray with them after the service because they're going through a hard time. To call them and say, hey, let's get together. I know you're carrying a heavy load. I want to encourage you. This, this Maple Avenue Baptist Church Yeah, it's crude, dysfunctional, kind of limping along, held together by the steely duct tape of the gospel. But this is what God has created to be something that is making a difference for eternity, changing the world, preparing the world for when Jesus comes. This is it. This is where it's at. It's an old hymn that sings of the church and says, For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. For her, my toils and cares be given till cares and toils shall end. I think that gets it about right. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for thinking of your church more like a tree house than the great lighthouse you've designed it to be. We're imperfect. 
Like every family, we're a bit dysfunctional. But your gospel's profound. Holds us together. It's making us new, shaping us, helping us all grow day by day, more like Christ. So may we not hold such trivial views of your church. Help us, Maple Avenue, Avenue to be the church you've called us to be. So may we give ourselves to godly order and godliness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.